For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. When you study a gospel, when you study one of the, the four historical records of who Jesus is, these are eyewitness accounts, and you're asking really the question that you should be asking is, is what is God like? This is a biography. This is literally answering the question is, what if God came and dwelt among us and lived in the circumstances that we live? What better way to understand who he is? What better way to see what his priorities are and what his heart is than to see him plop down in the middle of the human mess, right? He takes on these physical limitations. He gets hungry. He gets thirsty. He gets sleepy. You know, he experiences those limitations. He experiences and puts himself in a situation where he's under tremendous social pressure. He's experiencing, he's not only witnessing and seeing man's inhumanity to man, but he's experiencing it himself. He is being treated unjustly. He's betrayed by friends. He's going through the things that we go through, but he's going through it with his own nature and his own character. So we get an amazing picture of who he is when we read a gospel and we see the heart of God, we see his priorities. What does he, what really matters to God? Well, look at how Jesus lived his life and you will see the best answer to that question. As you study through the book of John, you see Jesus' impact. He's given himself to others. He's generous, he's kind, he's patient, yet he's also strong. He stands against injustice. He really hates it when people misrepresent who God is. He really has a problem with the religious rulers of his day who have communicated to people that God has a bunch of rules that he wants you to follow. He wants you to jump through a bunch of hoops and then maybe you'll be okay. And Jesus reserves his harshest critique. He calls them the blind leading the blind saying that this is not who God is, this idea that, you know, a relationship with God is about following rules. That is not what it's about. It's about love. Yes, God is a moral God. He cares about what we do. But his primary characteristic is love. Jesus is a healer. He cares about people who are hurting. He's a teacher. He communicates the truth. And he's a liberator. His whole point is to free us to free us, to help us understand what it is that we were really made for, who it is that God desired when he created us. I think one of the best passages in all of Scripture to communicate Jesus' mission comes from him. It's at the beginning of his ministry in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. He's quoting Isaiah, but he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He stands up at the beginning of his ministry in front of a synagogue. He reads this passage and he says, this, this prophecy today is fulfilled in your sight. This is my mission. I have come to set you free. And that's what we see when we study through the book of John as we see that's exactly who Jesus is. He's this highly polarizing character. Some people, when they meet him and they hear him and they see his miracles, they decide this truly is God. 
come to dwell among us and they want to worship him. They see his love, the way that he serves, the way that the miracles that he does, the way that nature itself obeys him and how with a word he can raise the dead. They hear his teaching and that he clearly claims and says, I am the Lord. I have come to show you the truth of who I am. And so this causes a division in the people of Israel. John 7, 40 through 41 says, Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, This certainly is the prophet. And others were saying, This is the Christ. The eyewitnesses who saw what this person was doing were coming to radical conclusions about who this must be. Others in John 10, 19 through 21 say, It says, a division occurred among the Jews because of these words. And many were saying, he has a demon and he's insane. Why do you listen to him? And others were saying, these are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? So we see they were wrestling. We are meant to wrestle with this idea of who is Jesus Christ. It's the most important question from God's perspective that a human being can ask. Was Jesus who he claimed to be, or was he something else? Others wanted to murder him. They looked at his teaching. They looked at what he did. They looked at how he acted, how he was countercultural. He was against the organization of the religion of his day, the thing that was controlling people and where the rich were getting richer, and he, they were shaming people into obedience. And he stood against that, and he became a threat to their tradi- traditions. He became a problem for them because he would do these incredible miracles that only God could do. And then he would say, these guys are wrong. And so, of course, they were threatened by that. It was a threat to their wealth. It was a threat to their statue. It was a threat to the entire social order of the nation of Israel. And the chapter right before we start this morning says in John eleven forty seven and 48, it says, therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council And we're saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. And in verse 53, they conclude, from that day on, they planned together to kill him. They didn't care about the truth. They didn't care about the evidence. They just cared about their position and their power. So we get to our passage, John chapter 12, starting in verse 1, and we read, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Now, this is significant because the pitch, the tenure, the pressure that Jesus had been creating in the culture had reached this high pitch where they're openly admitting that they're looking for and and wanting to kill Jesus. And this created a problem because the Passover was coming. And the Passover was where every Jewish man uh, and woman was supposed to come, if they could, to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. But Jerusalem is the seat of the power for the Pharisees. And so he sort of, as we get into this section, he's sort of doing this guerrilla preaching and healing ministry where he pops in, like does some healing, does some great teaching, rebukes the Pharisees and then melts back into the crowd. And they're like wanting to grab him, but they can't find it. And he just pops up and does this. He shows up at the temple and they rush to get there. And by the time they get there, he's already gone, having preached the message. 
So he, <coughs> he um, left from there, and a lot of Jesus' ministry was spent up here in the area of Galilee and Capernaum. And they were up there, and then they got word that their good friend Lazarus had died. And so they traveled down to Bethany, which is this city right here. And it is a small little village that's like two miles outside of Jerusalem. They're heading right back into the hotbed, right at Passover. And I love how they respond to this. Uh, the disciple uh, Thomas, sometimes he's referred to as Doubting Thomas. He makes this real snarky comment. They're like, well, we got to go down because Lazarus died and we're going to go fix that. And Thomas says in John 11, good, so let's go, let's go, and we can die with him. <laughs> That's how dangerous, they understand the danger of the situation that they are in. And he's like, great, you want to go to Bethany? Let's all die. And Jesus is like, let's go. <laughs> so they're hanging out there, it's, the, it's right around the Passover, and they're hanging out at Lazarus' house, we read in verse 2. And they made supper there, and Martha, one of the sisters, was serving, and Lazarus was reclining at the table with Jesus, and Mary took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, why is this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? And now as he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the money box he used to pilfer and he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore, Jesus said, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you will always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. And the large crowds of Jews then learned that he was there. So this is sort of an interesting account. There's a number of dynamics going on here. He concludes and says they came not only for Jesus' sake, but they also wanted to see Lazarus, who he raised from the dead. So Lazarus himself kind of becomes this picture of who Jesus is. This guy was dead three days in a tomb. And now he's alive and he's sitting at the table and he's having dinner. And people were, were fascinated to understand and, and get a picture and a piece of, of what was happening. One thing we have to note with this passage is there are actually four Gospels. And in all four Gospels, there's an account of a woman anointing Jesus' feet with perfume. Three of those accounts, the one we just read in John, Matthew, and Mark, are all the same. They occur in the same place, Bethany. They occur at the same person's house, Simon the leper. The woman is named as Mary. The issue is why this waste. They all occur toward the end of Jesus' ministry. And they all, Jesus' response to all of them is, she did this for me. There's one account in Luke which is very different, and it's sometimes confused with these other accounts. The one in Luke doesn't happen in Bethany. It's a guy named Simon, but it's Simon the Pharisee, and we can be very confident that Simon the leper and Simon the Pharisee, two different people. Simon, a very common name in this time. Uh, the woman is an unnamed prostitute in Luke, uh, and the issue there is that the Pharisee watching this prostitute anoint Jesus' feet with oil is like if this man were a prophet, he would know how dirty and filthy this woman is. It happens toward the beginning of Jesus' ministry, not toward the end. And the point is, is that Jesus forgives her sins. So most scholars agree that this account is actually 
that this anointing of, of his feet happened twice in Jesus's ministry, which isn't all that far out when you understand ancient practices of foot washing and all this other stuff. It's different enough that it's clear that these are, it's, it's fairly clear that these are not the same two accounts. So what we're going to draw from, we're going to draw from parallel passages, but we're going to stick in Matthew and Mark because those are clearly the same as what we're studying in John. We don't really know what spike nard is. It doesn't sound that great. What is spike nard? It comes from the Indian spike nard plant. One resource says, why was spike nard so expensive? Because of where it grows and the difficulty in obtaining it. Spike nard is not native to Egypt or the Middle East. It is native to the Himalayas and grows in high altitudes. Its use in the ancient world is a demonstration of their sophisticated trade routes and the importance placed on aromatic material. Now remember, this is before planes, this is before trains, this, you know, getting something from the upper elevations of the Himalayas in India over to Jerusalem would be an incredible expense. This is a rare aromatic flower. And she's got a pound of this stuff in an alabaster jar, which is a valuable substance at that time in and of itself. It's almost like marble. And so when they describe this, they say they went uh, to a lot of trouble to obtain this little root. Spikenard was packaged in carved alabaster boxes, carefully brought down by a caravan and exported to the ancient world. It's interesting. This is not a biblical source. This is uh, actually about tourism in Egypt. And they're talking about how they have all these alabaster boxes that used to have spikenard in them. And this is the way that this was handled. And here we see this is exactly what Mary has. What does it smell like? That was like something I really wanted to know. It talks about the room filling with this odor. And you're like, man, I wonder what, what it smelled like. And it says it's not necessarily what you expect a perfume to smell like. If your expectations are of a floral garden, spikenard has a profound and complex aroma, a combination of sweet, spicy, musky, a very organic and earthy scent. Well, I'm sure it smelled better than anybody's feet. <laughs> and that was sort of the point was this was a, 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 um, a cleaning, but it was the work of a servant. And Mary is not Jesus' servant. She's his friend. She's a follower. And she does this incredible act of, of humility by getting down in front of him and anointing and washing his feet. We're told that it's worth 300 denarii. That's sort of Judas is like, dude, that's worth a lot of money. 300 denarii is a year's wage in the ancient world. A denarii was basically considered a day's wage. And you, know, you would work about 300 out of 365 days. So this was like a year's income. You know, Here in the United States, the average income is something like $40,000. This is a jar with a pound of oil in it that is worth $40,000. And so this is probably a fair family heirloom, something that had been passed down you know, without really good banks. And you know, the, the, um, the currency was coin. So imagine trying to carry around $40,000 in metal coins. Not easy to do. So families would often invest in items like this that were incredibly rare and incredibly valuable so that you could, you could hide your wealth more easily. It might have been her retirement, her life savings. The point is it's an item of incredible value. 
I don't know many of us that have things in our house that are worth $40,000 that you could put in a backpack and walk out with. And yet, she takes this and she sees this opportunity to give it all to Jesus as, a, as an act of affection and love. And what I think is good here is we see there's really three different perspectives that we can draw out of this. We have Mary's perspective, we have Judas's perspective, and then in the final verses, we get to see the Pharisee's perspective. The, the, the question that this is begging is, why did Mary do this? Well, one of the things is, is she clearly understood and knew that Jesus was in grave danger. They were plotting to kill him. He had come down to be with them only two miles from the, the heart of Jerusalem. And he was prioritizing being with the people that he loved and he wasn't hiding. And he had taught, the disciples knew, Jesus explained to them on a fairly regular basis that part of the plan was for him to die. Matthew 16, 21 says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. It's kind of amazing. He keeps telling them, look, we're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. And they're like, hmm, I wonder what that means. You know, it's like, like they can't believe he's going to literally physically bodily die. They keep trying to like, it just sort of washes over them. But guess who was around for a lot of Jesus' teachings? Mary. And she appears to be taking it quite literally. She knows that her time is short. And she is desperate to in some way communicate to Christ the value that he has to her. And she recognizes this may be her last opportunity. She clearly fully believed in him. Whenever we see, whenever we meet Mary, she's sitting at Jesus' feet listening to his teachings, listening to what he has to say about who God is and the love of God and the mercy of God and the joy that she can have by having a personal relationship with God. It's clear that this is an act of extreme devotion and appreciation, and we definitely live in a time where we look at things like that and we're like, there is such a thing as too far right? Religious extremism is something that, you know, we look at today and we all kind of want to say, you know, religion has its place. You know, faith has its place. It's good, but don't go too far. We've seen where that leads. Don't get too extreme in how much of yourself you're willing to give to any one belief. And what we replace that with, what we argue is, is that, you know, really it's you, you and yourself and your life and your own, own well-being. That's the only thing that's really worth putting first. And whether we believe that or not, whether we admit that or not, we are rife in a culture that points us in that direction. It's, it's possible that we actually do believe that. While in, the, in our hearts, we listen to that and say, no, I'm not the most important thing in my life. Because we know that doesn't sound good. We would say, my family, my, my friends, my community are the most important thing in my life. But when we look at the priorities, where do we spend our time, our energy, and our money? Maybe not so much. Maybe actually it is much easier to go with the current of our culture and live for self. And so we might be tempted to look at what Mary does here and we say, oh yeah, well, it's the Bible, you know, and she's, she's real extreme. She's sitting there with Jesus 
And so, you know, she gives her whole life savings away just to make his feet smell good. And, you know, that's good for her. And, I, you know, if I were there, I might do something like that. But, you know, I live in the modern world. What's the point? The point is, is that she, think about it from this standpoint. She is bodily there in a moment in history and time where she can literally do something for the person of Jesus Christ. I mean, we can all do something for God. He says, you know, if you love me, shepherd my sheep. We can serve God's people. We can, we can relate to him. We can connect with him. But imagine being able to anoint his body in preparation for his burial. To say to him, you matter to me this much. What, a, what an amazing point in history. What an amazing opportunity. And she's the only one that takes it. She's the only one that seizes that chance. You know, we think into eternity future. We're all in heaven in God's community, thinking back about our time here on earth. And maybe one day we'll meet Mary and we'll say, so do you wish you spent that 40K on something else? What do you think she'll say? She'll just feel like, I just wish I had more. I love that I had the opportunity to do that. And I love that 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 set an example for others in terms of how they prioritize their relationship with God. See, for Mary, the perfume was of very little value compared to what she had received as a follower of Jesus Christ. At the beginning of the book of John, John the Baptist sees Jesus for the first time, and he says something very important. In John 1.29, he sees Jesus and he says, uh, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's such an important statement because it's right at the heart and the issue of who Jesus is and what his mission was. He was to come as an innocent substitute, a sacrifice offered up to God where the judgment of God that we deserve personally, each and every one of us, would be poured out on him instead so that we could be reconciled to God. The point of The entire mission here is that we have a problem. We know, if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we are broken. There's something wrong in us. We want to do good, and sometimes we do some good, but we know know that we have flaws. We have shortcomings. We fall short, and we, we try to do good, and we never get there. And then sometimes we find ourselves doing things that we truly hate, that we think are despicable, and we we live in guilt and shame. Wondering, why am I this way? God's explanation for that is that we are broken, that we are, we are flawed. Not that he made us that way, but that we have chosen together as a race into rebellion against him. And as a just God, he must destroy evil. And all of us fall into that category. So he came as the Lamb of God to take the sins of the world upon himself so that we could be spared and restored and renewed in our relationship with our Creator for which we were intended. Jesus talks about it this way in Matthew 13, 44. He tells the parable. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it, and it goes and sells all that he has to buy the field. What he's saying is, is there's nothing of more value than your standing before God then your place in the book of life, your opportunity to spend eternity future with him 
that has more value than all the money in the world. It's the most important thing that, that you can wrestle with is am I willing to accept God's forgiveness and enter into a relationship with Him? And that's exactly what, what Mary is modeling. She has a relationship with God and she recognizes this expensive bauble is nothing compared to the eternity that he is buying for me. In John 1, 12, it says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. That's what's amazing is the price, the incredible price that's paid is paid by God himself. But what he buys with that price is our freedom, our redemption, and then he offers it back to us as a free gift. He asks nothing in return other than the acceptance of his forgiveness and the acknowledgement and the understanding that he is God and that we cannot earn our way to him, but he will give us eternal life as a free gift because of what Jesus Christ has done. That picture is at the heart of the entire message of the Bible, that God is love and he wants to renew and restore his relationship with us. We look at Judas's reaction and we see something different. He was disappointed with Jesus. There's some evidence from Judas's name, they call him Iscariot, that um, he may have been a political radical. He may have been thinking that uh, Jesus is going to come and overthrow the Romans. That was something that a lot of people, a lot of the zealots wanted. They believed that the nation of Israel was holy and it was, it was against God's will that they should be under a heathen emperor like the emperor of Rome and that God himself would send a destroyer to establish the nation of Israel to throw off the Roman oppressors and to set up his rule and his kingdom on earth. They thought maybe that's who Jesus is. And Judas seems to have linked himself with Jesus, maybe in hopes of that, maybe just in hopes of what can he do? Jesus is someone who's charismatic. He's influential. People follow him. They worship him. He can heal. I'm just going to hitch my wagon to this guy because, I mean, it seems like it's, he's going somewhere. And so he connects himself with them. But he sees what's happening here, and the heart of Judas is exposed. Why this waste, this $40,000 to anoint the feet of this man? There's a, there's a limit to the value that Jesus has in Judas' mind. And on the one hand, you can kind of agree with it. You're like, a lot of good could be done with that money. It seems like it's a waste of resources. But we're cued in that that really isn't the heart of what Jesus' problem is, or Judas's problem is. Judas's problem is that he does not understand the value of the relationship right in front of him with Jesus Christ. And so John tells us now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. He's like, you know, we could put $40,000 in the box. I'll take care of it. We also see Jesus' response, which is a little unsettling, I think. Jesus, you know, we could look at this and we could say, is this Jesus saying the poor aren't important? What does he say? He says, let her alone that she may keep it for the day of my burial, for you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And it's sort of like, ooh, Jesus, what does that mean? 
We know that God has a heart for the poor, that Jesus was poor, that a great deal of Scripture is spent talking about giving to the poor. So is it that Jesus isn't concerned for the poor, or is it that Jesus is like, yeah, the poor are fine, but, you know, I'm the man. You know, I think we kind of read our 21st century ego into some of the statements that are being made here. It might interest you to know that when he says you'll always have the poor with you, he's actually quoting the Old Testament. These guys were all raised studying the Bible. And Deuteronomy 15.11 says, For the poor will never cease to be in the land. The poor will always be with you. Therefore, God says, you shall freely open your hand to your brother to your needy, to your poor, and your land. God loves the poor. God has his entire community of believers oriented toward helping people in need. That is a huge part of what it means to be a follower of God. And that is a huge, that is the whole, you know, message that Jesus is coming to give is that we need to give of ourselves to others because God is prepared to give us so much. Proverbs 14.31 goes as far as to say, He who oppresses the poor taunts his maker, but he who is gracious to the needy honors him. So if we know Jesus and we know what he's about, we know that he is all about serving the poor. He is all about giving to the needy. It's what he's dedicated his entire life to do. And he's demonstrated it. He is not a wealthy man. He says the son of man has no place to lay his head. He died with the clothes on his back as the sum of his possessions. But what he's saying is, is that there are priorities. There are ways of ranking what is most important. And what Jesus is always saying is to put God before all other things. Putting God first is the way that we get to all the other things. If we learn how to put God first in our lives, we will be moved to give to the poor. But giving to the poor is not the ultimate end. The ultimate end is our relationship with God who transforms our hearts and makes us even more generous with the poor. The best way to solve any problem, to become a more loving person, a more generous person, a better husband, a better wife, a better student, a better mom, a better dad. The best way to do that is to put God first because in his infinite resources, he will enable you to do more. Jesus taught in Mark 6, 32 and 33, for the Gentiles eagerly seek all things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all things. But seek first his kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The best thing that you can do for anyone in your life is to put God first, and they will be, receive a blessing of the power of God moving through you, which is more than you could ever hope to muster on your own. The Pharisees look at this, and it says in verse 10 and 11, but the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to the death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. Right? So they're sizing up the situation. They're looking at it, and they're saying, what is this about? This, this, everybody's really believing in Jesus. They're like, we got to kill Lazarus, and we got to kill Jesus. we got to wipe this out. What are they saying? They're saying it doesn't matter what the truth is. It doesn't matter what the evidence is. The, the point is, is that this man and his teachings are a threat to our power, our prestige, 
our wealth, and we of our of in first importance. They're living the way that our culture tells us we should naturally live. They're putting themselves first. And Jesus is a threat to them as well as to us. Jesus is a threat to us living for self. And that's why a lot of us sort of instinctively are like, mm, thanks, but no thanks. If I head down that path, I'm not sure that I want to become somebody who consider the needs of others as more important than themselves. I have a lot of needs. And they are wrestling with this in this way. And their conclusion is Jesus and everyone around them has to go. So the point of this passage and the point you know, that we can come together on this morning is this question of how do we prioritize Jesus Christ? Is it crazy to give up an incredible job opportunity because you want to stay with your friends and your family to come in and, and build community and make relationships and make serving one another and make loving God the most important thing? It's not that you can't do that somewhere else. No one's saying that. But the question is, is can you do it as well? And are you prepared to uproot yourself from what has already been built and start over? Is that God's will? And what are our priorities when we make those choices? Are we prepared to teach our children that spiritual things are more important than material success? You know, I've got a son who's 16, a daughter who's 14, and, you know, they're in the rat race of the whole, where do they go to college, what are they going to do, and are they going to have a good enough resume, and all those things. And I can tell you firsthand, the pressure is tremendous because you want your kids to be safe. And you feel like, you know, saying to them, you know, well, maybe, you know, maybe you should focus on your spiritual life that's more important than your grades. <gasps> I said it. Right? And you feel a little bit when you even, even as a parent, when you say something like that, you're like, man, I just hope I'm not screwing this kid up. Is that not odd that a pastor who's dedicated a lot of his life to the things of God feels weird saying to his kids, spiritual things are more important than financial things. It was a much easier decision, honestly, to make for myself than for my kids. It's not because I regret the decisions that I've made or the life that I have or the things that are in my life. I would hope that my kids have at least as great a life as I do because I think I have a fantastic life. And I think that that life is solely responsible for the areas where I have said yes to God. But I am so desperately afraid of giving my kids bad advice and closing doors for them. And the world is beating in on me at all times and saying that includes financial success. It's much harder to encourage your kids to live that life than it is to live that life yourself. Isn't that bizarre? Are we willing to prioritize our relationship with God, our relationship with our family, our friends, our home group? Are we willing to put that before our career, our retirement? Are we willing to go with a little bit less and take a little more risk down the road because we want to invest in spiritual things? Are we willing to give of our time, our money, in service to others because we are grateful for what God has done for us? Are we going to open our homes and our lives to broken people who will take advantage? Not because... We love being taken advantage of, but because we have been given eternal life and we have so much to give.
Is Jesus worth more? Maybe you don't know God, and that question for you just means this. Is he worth your time to investigate him more deeply? Have you really looked at his claims? He is not the God. He is not the person that has been portrayed in our culture. The Bible tells a different story about who Jesus is. Is he worthy of more of your time, of giving more of yourself to others? Is Jesus a means to an end? Is it more like Judas where we look at these things and trust me, these are not, these are not exclusive categories, right? We all are going to wrestle with these things in varying degrees. You can't make your living as a pastor without wondering, am I just not here because I don't know what else I would do at this point in my life? I've oriented my whole life with degrees and time building into a community. Could I even leave if I wanted to? And you wonder, is it that I'm, that I'm just so committed that I just keep going? What was, G, what was Judas thinking about? He was committed. He had invested so much. Is the community here good networking for your career? Is that the point? Is that the way that we can use Jesus to accomplish our goals? Are we in it for the waffles and the barbecue? I mean, they are going to be really good waffles and barbecue. What, why are we here? And what is it that we're asking? What is it that we're insisting that Jesus give us in order we're holding back of giving our full devotion to him? Some of us are here because we feel guilty when we don't show up. And we're just asking, you know, to check a box and go home and say, I went to church. I brought my family to church this Sunday. That's the kind of person that I am. And we're looking to God to alleviate that. Is Jesus the answer? Is he able to give your life purpose and meaning? Yes. Is he able to fill the hole in your life? He is the only thing that is able to fill the hole. The real deep part of you that is unsatisfied with who you are is the part of you that God made to relate to him. And he will fill it. Is Jesus the way or is he an obstacle to your goals? Is Jesus the way or is he an offensive thorn in your, in your conscience where you're just like, I just wish I could shut this aside and focus on real things. Why does this bother me? Is Jesus a glaring reminder that you are not God? And that living for self and putting yourself first is the first way to a broken home, a broken family, and a broken life. No matter how much wealth you can get by putting yourself first, will you die happy and content that you live for the right things if you throw out God and you throw out community? God's answer is no. He warns us now and clearly lays out that is not what we were made to live for. One of my favorite preachers, Charles Spurgeon, sums it up this way. He writes, Beloved friends, the church of Christ needs a band of men and women full of enthusiasm who will go beyond others in the devotion of the Lord to Jesus. We need missionaries who will dare to die to carry the gospel to regions beyond. We need ministers who will defy public opinion and with flaming zeal burn away into men's hearts. We need men and women who will consecrate all that they have by daring deeds of heroic self-sacrifice. 
Oh, that all Christians were like this, but we must have at least some. We need a bodyguard of loving champions to rally around the Savior, the bravest of the brave, immortals and invincibles who shall lead the van of the armies of the Lord. Where are we to get them? How are we to, they to be produced? The Holy Spirit's way to train men and women who shall greatly serve Christ is to lead them to deep thought and quiet contemplation. Thence they obtain the knowledge and the vital principle, which are the fuel of true zeal. You cannot leap into high devotion, neither can you be preached into it, nor dream yourselves into it, or be electrified into it by revivalism. It must, through the divine energy of the Holy Spirit, arise out of hard, stern dealing with your soul, and near and dear communion with your Savior. You must sit at His feet, or you will never anoint them. He must pour His divine teaching into you, or you will never pour out a precious ointment upon Him. Why don't we pray together? God, we know that we are not where we want to be, that we hold back, that we, um, we use You to glorify ourselves. We, um, we still want to be our own God. But we know that you died to pay for that sin too. And we are just grateful, God, that you have ascribed and, and consider us so valuable. We wish, God, and we hope that we can strive to show you the value that you deserve. And we ask that you'll lead us down that path and help us to grow wherever we're at now that as we move forward, we could be more assured, more sincere, more confident that a life lived all out for you is the best life. And we thank you with your patience for, with us while we fail. And we ask God that we could be a community that helps one another down that road together. And we rejoice, God, in the beauty of what we have and the blessings of what you've given us and the hope of what the future will bring. In Jesus' name, amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.